are looking at this mediator and in the carrying out of the divine decrees, and remember we had a chapter on the decrees of God, the divine decrees um, is where God established here in this sense now where we're at, the covenant of grace. In His decree, it was His will, His was purpose, His good uh, pleasure to operate with this um, particular covenant. And He uses a person to establish it and it was no other than the eternally begotten Son of God. And He volunteered to die for the remission of sins of people like us, His people, to bring them savingly home for not only this particular time in history, but all the way through eternity. And he, in this time, He delivers us into uh, sanctification and glorification will come uh, as we, we look to that. And it's all been accomplished by Christ. And when you think of the mediator, you, you are thinking uh, on the very person of Christ. Um, good time to be looking at this, really, at this time of Christmas season. The mediator, the person of Christ, and and uh, in, involved with all this, you have to think of, and we'll, we'll be looking at those points uh, later, but you have to think of the humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ, and those are definitely doctrines that one cannot escape when they look at Christ and uh, His birth and what it's all about. The mediator intercedes for us, doesn't he? And he procures the very salvation that we uh, we have to have, and we have looking at we've looked at the fall and seen how God makes a plan and works through that. He already had that plan made for everlasting life. Um, there are three roles that help us summarize the work of Jesus Christ. Prophet, priest, king. And when you think of mediator, you can't escape those because this is His work. And it is, I think, in a comprehensive form, if, if you look at those three offices, it's a good way to summarize the work of Christ in the Old Testament, New Testament, which you, you see that. Um, it is a theme that was somewhat taken by Aquinas. He brought that forth and then you will see it in Calvin's writings and he will refer to it as prophet, king, and priest. We usually think of prophet, priest, and king. Um, Calvin wrote of it in that way. And John Owen uh, wrote much on it and played a vital role in that in his thinking. And there was a man who lived about his same time by the name of Usher. I know there's an artist by the name of Usher. <laughs> but uh, this theologian took prophet and he said, well, that deals with man's ignorance <laughs> because we need somebody to come and teach us to proclaim the truth. He is the prophet. And then he takes priest and he shows how he atones for our sin and then King deals with the King who defeats death. We are mortal beings, and of course Christ is immortal, and He defeats that. So, prophet, priest, king, He deals with our ignorance, and then He atones for our sin, and then we have a King who is all victorious, triumphant, and whom we can, uh, we can look to. Uh, anyway, um, just a scripture on each one of these, and then we'll come back and maybe look at a few more. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on prophet, priest, and king. We'll do this reading on here in the mediator here in a moment. Um, matter of fact, it wouldn't be bad to do it now, if uh, if we may. This first point is dealing with what uh, we've just kind of been talking about. You'll see prophet, priest, and king there. If uh, we want to, we can all read this. It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of His church, the heir of all things, and the judge of the world, 
unto whom He did from all eternity give a people to be His seed, and to be by Him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Thank the Lord for the Mediator. For where would we be without that? Well, we'd be left in our dead in our sins and trespasses and everything would be against us. So anyway, the prophet, you can look at a scripture in Acts chapter 3, 20-22. Christ, the prophet. And that He may send Jesus... the Lord, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. So, Moses, you think of a great prophet, of course, there were going to be prophets later on. And of course, you think of the prophets that we read about, uh, read from, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and so forth. God gave these spokesmen to people so they would understand His truth. Of course, the prophet of all prophets, and Moses is really saying that here, a prophet uh, like me in the sense that Moses was the leader of the people. He also was a king to them, wasn't he? And he also was, until they had that Levitical priesthood raised up, he was a priest too, uh, bringing the people... Intercession uh, or interceding. Exactly. Perfect intercession mm-hmm. that, that he did. And, and, of course, he saw the glory of God and it was on him and he went to the people and they couldn't help but see some of the glory of God. So he represented man to God and God to man. And that really is what a, a mediator uh, does. One of his major points. But here, uh, Paul, or not Paul, um, probably, uh, this is Peter, I think. Peter and John were in uh, the portico there in Jerusalem. And that was a message that was brought forth. And he drew from Moses to speak about the prophet. This is the prophet. This is the prophet that you killed. And he spoke to the Jews. Anyway, that's a prophet. Uh, let's let's look at a priestly passage. There are many, there are many out throughout New Testament, Old Testament, um, and we'll be looking at a few. But this one, uh, I think, just screams of the priesthood all through Hebrews, <laughs> especially seven through ten. You get so much about uh, the priest there, and and the covenant. I think of chapter eight. There has to be a mediator of that covenant. Hebrews 5, 5 and 6. So also Christ did not glorify Himself so as to become a high priest, but He who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. Just as He says also in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So He didn't come through the Levitical way. He came through... Melchizedek. And so, uh, I mean, in the sense that that was the order there. There was no beginning of that in that He is the priest of all priests. He is the great high priest that we, uh, we think about. So the prophet, the priest, uh, you can think of this time of the year, the Christmas message. You can think in uh, Luke chapter 1. You get the Christmas story there. And you get uh, a message from the angel as uh, Gabriel announces the birth. And in verse 33, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. He will reign his kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. That's a prophecy of uh, this... Christ. He's born. As He's born, He is the King. And He is the King who will reign over us. Thinking about the uh, the prophet, and go back to that for um, just 
just a just a few moments here. Old Testament, you have a succession of prophets, one after another after another. And of course, they're not only announcing doom and um, the judgment that God's going to make, but He also is prophesying about the Messiah. You get the good news through um, these prophets, and you um, you have to think that out of those prophets, they're teaching. They're teaching ultimately the Messiah. People were without understanding until people would proclaim truth. And there was going to be a full light of understanding. It's pointing to Christ. And of course, He is the one who proclaims and gives full light. Uh, The advent of the Messiah is where this truth of the prophet really came into fruition. Um, In John 4.25, there was the Samaritan woman and she runs into this amazing man who seems to know about her life. (laughs) And, of course, um, she says something here in 425, I know that Messiah comes, which is called Christ. When He has come, He will tell us all things. He will teach us all things. Prophecy. He is the prophet. He will give us everything. Even the Samaritans were looking forward to the Messiah. That's an amazing thing. Even as far wrong as they'd gone, they'd turn into idolatry and very cultic. But yet, they, that truth of the Messiah still remained in their teaching. It's pretty incredible. I think you thought they would have dismissed it by that time. That had been going on a while. Isaiah 55, uh, verse 4. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. There's your prophet there. He's a witness of truth. He's a witness of who the Messiah is, really. He's a commander. He's a leader. Um, in Isaiah 9 6, Christmas time, wonderful counselor. It's actually wonderful counselor. Mighty God. They're speaking of the Messiah. Wonderful counselor. The counselor, the teacher, the prophet. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, we seem to go there quite often. And in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. Spoken in His Son. Before that, God spoke in many different ways, divers' manners, sundries' ways that He spoke. And in these last days, it's through the person of Christ. There's the prophet, isn't it? The prophet of prophets. Um, in, in the book of Daniel, there was a period assigned as Daniel spoke about it, to seal up the vision and prophecy. It all comes to fruition. Daniel 9.24, Christ is the one that winds up sealing it all up. So the meaning of the prophet for us is quite incredible. Uh, and, And you have to think, well, what does Messiah mean? Messiah means anointed. And so when you think mediator, you have to think of the Messiah, which means anointed. And then you take the three offices, and they were anointed. Each one was anointed with oil, and it was significant to show that they were now in that office. Uh, The prophet would be anointed. The priest would be anointed. The king would be anointed. Christ, he's the Messiah. The Messiah. The anointed one. And in... Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to what? To preach, proclaim, prophesy. Here's the prophet. To preach good tidings or good news unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to the opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now that's in Isaiah. That's where you first see it. You see the same thing in the New Testament. Where was Jesus at whenever He spoke this? In the synagogue. In the synagogue. And He read that. And He's more or less saying, this is Me. This has been fulfilled. Wow. Wow. Can I ask, at the risk of not being on topic, Psalm 133, 
I've always wondered what that means because it says, uh, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil ah. on the head running down on the beard of Aaron. I wonder if that's, does that have anything to do with some sort of anointing? Or? I think it probably goes, yeah, uh, back to the Levitical priesthood. Okay. I think of like Aaron. Who you know, and then you have the anointing there uh, that he was the high priest of the whole people of, of Israel. There, which I think that'd be a great picture of the spiritual blessings that we have in the body of Christ. Right. So that's very, uh, very much so that ties in. That's a, that's like a that's a super blessing, yeah. and isn't it great? It is. It's great when God's people have this. Uh, so he compares it with that which anybody yeah. would think of that. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. That's most likely. I would say that uh, that's hitting right down there. That's a that's a, a top notch priority, definitely. Yeah, coming down the beard, <laughs> even Aaron's beard. I always thought it was a weird. <laughs> when they did anoint it, yeah. Your beard. <laughs> yeah, they were totally immersed with it. Yeah, you know? and he's saying how good and pleasant that is. <laughs> Matter of fact. I remember there was a song, Behold How Good. I can't remember how it goes now, but it, it used these exact same words, Behold How Good and How Pleasant It Is for Brothers to Dwell Together in Unity. In Unity. Well, in Unity. Da, da, da. If Penny were here, she would she would know. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's great. That's a great thought there. So anyway, the, the, quite the meaning, I think, to all of us the prophet here, he's distinguished from any other teachers, any other prophets. There were some prophets that stand out in our mind that God chose to use, but he is what they wrote about. He is the prophet. Well, following the line of Calvin, then we'll go to king next. We'd normally go to priest, right? So we'll go to, go to king. Um, Psalm 2. Two through four. This is where the nations are in uproar. Verse two The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed Mashiach, Messiah, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So the the kings turn against the king of kings, the very anointed, the, the Lord. Keep on reading. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Those are really powerful terms. Terrify, fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. His design, His plan, His purpose. He said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. That's an incredible thought there, whereas the, the kings turn against the king of kings, really, is what it comes down to. The Lord scoffs at them. People are, have something to be terrified, really have a fear and a fury about. The decree is... He's begotten His Son to be the King of Kings. And so, that uh, that's a thought. I, I have to think of Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, remember this one, Thou art at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That's, that's the victorious, triumphant King we know. This is the King of Kings, right? Uh, no matter how many, how many powerful enemies from the leaders of the world there are that just try to assault the church and try to destroy it. People in our nation want to destroy the church. It won't happen. Church is forever. And He appointed His Son, the Eternal King, who's made victory over that already. So it's something that we... Uh, 
we look to in the future. You know, there are some external advantages because we have a king, but those same advantages that we have sometimes materialistically, the unbelieving world has, maybe even much more, um, the, the happiness, uh, the blessings that we have are promised ultimately, though. They don't consist in just having external advantages. If you believe in Jesus Christ, everything's going to go good. <laughs> we know better than that, don't we? Um, it absolutely is pointing to a heavenly life. And, and we can have some temporal goods that, that happen here. And we sure, certainly are blessed. Homes we live in, cars we drive, things that we have to get, things that we don't have to get. And we are tremendously blessed, maybe spoiled. Uh, anyway, there's even peace. We, we have peace today, a domestic peace here. There's temporal goods. There's an abundance of it. And we can thank the Lord for that. But ultimately, it's because our King has triumphed and all of that, everything is leading to our ultimately good whenever we are seeing Him reign fully. Uh, so, the, 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 And the kingdom reigns within us, the, the kingdom there, and there's also uh, outside of us the king. I think there's quite the benefit in having this great king, isn't there? Prophet, priest, king. Let's go to the priest then. Um... The judge is hostile to sinners. And this kind of sounds like um, our passage in 2 Corinthians 5 that we dealt with Sunday here. Um, this is the, that priestly office where there is expiation made. That means the sin is taken away. Ex means out. Throw out, right? A priest has to appease the wrath of God in the Old Testament. That was the idea with the Old Testament sacrifices. And we know a mediator has to reinstate the people who are enemies into His favor. And so it behooved this Messiah, the Christ, to appear with a sacrifice because the priest in the Old Testament had to appear with a sacrifice. And they were forbidden to enter that sanctuary without blood. And of course, there was the Holy of Holies once a year only. Could they do that? It was for them, then the people. And it was teaching the worshiper that God could not, would not be propitiated or satisfied uh, with that until that blood was brought forth to Him to show that there had been death. A sacrifice made sacrifice of His death. He wiped away our guilt, expiated it, took it away, and made satisfaction to God the Father for our sin. Substitutionary atonement. Heart of the Gospel. I can't see it any other way. Why would anybody want to take this part away? Well, it's very offensive. Because it says we are guilty. We are sinners. We are wicked. We are evil. There's nothing in us that can bring a sacrifice to Him to please God. And it takes one in place of us. Psalm 110, verse 4, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's also in Hebrews. And it's in that same chapter, 110, uh, verse 1, where it talked about the king. There you also see the priest. Amazing. No access to God at all for being declared right except for Christ and also for our prayers. He's not only a priest who sacrificed, He's also the sacrificial offering, isn't He? And that was not done in the Old Testament. The priests didn't sacrifice themselves. They sacrificed the animal. But here you have the one who does that. But not only was it done there, He continues to offer up prayers for us and we can pray because of the Mediator. Uh, he purged away our defilements, took away our guilt, 
the same time He's sanctifying us right now, presently, today. So He abstained, He obtained every favor that um, was was needed there as grace that was done with His with His death. So He's a perpetual intercessor. He interceded once and for all, sat down at the right hand of the Father. At the same time, He ever lives to make intercession. That's how important that office of the priest is to us. So Now we can have confidence in our prayer life. Even if we ask amiss, our prayers because of Christ, the Mediator, and then the Holy Spirit, He turns those prayers into being something that God hears. Tranquility in our minds because of that, isn't it? So, God under the law ordered that there would be sacrifices of animals to be offered to Him. And He made a new new arrangement. And so His Son would be the sacrifice and the sacrificer. Um, he was the victim. He was the priest. <laughs> Rather incredible. I know of no other religion that even offers that. No other satisfaction for sin. Nothing else could be found. So we look at Revelation 1, verse 6. <coughs> By the way, verse 5 is a good place to start with there. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. Remember, covenant, it requires blood. He's the one that offers the blood. And He has made us to be a kingdom. Priests, to His God and Father, to Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. How can you not shout out glory to God in that, right? Kingdom and priests. Because of that, we are kingdom priests. It's great news. Begotten Son of Christ. So, prophet, priest, king. What a amazing teaching that God has given us in, in that kind of uh, thought. Hey, can I share something? Yeah, go right ahead. Uh, I've been, re- been going through Genesis and I was reading this today. And I guess I've been reading this my whole life and I never caught it. Um, but in chapter 14, verse 18, when Abraham um, meets Melchizedek, it says that he, he brought out bread and wine. I, I just had never seen that before. Isn't that interesting? It'll be those elements. Yeah. <laughs> and and of course, what a picture of a priest there. Of course, but what a what a picture of that we identify with. Yeah. And it's the definitely Christ, the Christ was pointing to to in, in the Lord's Supper. Exactly. What a type of of Christ there, isn't it? Yeah. And of course, uh, what a what a blessing there! And he's king, the and he's a king to king of a king and a priest. Yeah, king, king of righteousness, priest. king of peace. Yeah. Yes. You say what he said because we can't hear you. We can't hear him. Project. Oh, Project. sorry. I was saying um, in the story of Melchizedek, Abraham and Melchizedek, it says that he when he met with Abraham, he brought out bread and wine which are the two elements of the Lord's Supper. And I've never seen that before. Oh, okay. Isn't it funny how you can read something over and over and then suddenly something jumps yeah. out at you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that... Um, by many teachers that I have read, that very spot that he was at there when it says Salem, that is what we would know as... What later became Jerusalem, oh, really? which was probably, guess where that could have been on the very place where the temple would wind up being, where they offered the sacrifices, and so it's very, 
very much more than possible, I think, is where that's that's at. And the ty- the types there are just beautiful. Yeah. Teaching that God was given right there and early in Genesis, how he, he continues to keep showing the Messiah. How can you miss Christ in the Old Testament? But because you know the New Testament, then it's only then that the Old Testament then comes alive with Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wrote history down in here for this church. <laughs> As that, that was happening, he's like, we're going to read about this. That's stated a couple of times in the New Testament. Right. Yeah, it was given for, for us. Mm-hmm. Beautiful thing. Where's that at in Genesis 14? Genesis 14. 14. Oh, 14. Yeah. 14 to 18 is when he meets with Melchizedek. Okay, uh, I like the way that first one uh, started off. It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, <laughs> to be this mediator. Now, it does say some other things. Well, we skipped through these. We're not taking every word in here. But head, Savior of the church, heir, judge of the world. and uh, But He gave Him to us, or for us, so that we'd be redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, glorified. (laughs) So I think they said a lot in just one little paragraph there. And that sets us up. The the rest of these we'll probably go through pretty quickly, and I could be wrong on that. I won't guarantee you. (laughs) But the rest of this we have seen quite a bit already lining up to this, and it takes a person to Christ. And it's a good time of the year to do this, because you'll see so much about Christ and His human nature, His... Deity also, and Virgin Mary here. So it's it's like the Christmas story. <laughs> let's let's read this. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof. Yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost and the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, Yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. There's your incarnation. There's your Christmas story. There's the birth of Christ. God becomes man, took on the nature of man. John 1, John 1, 14. Of course, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. He is truth. He is the prophet. He is what that's all about. Uh, Philippians 2.6, you think of the epitome of humility in Philippians 2. And verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So the man, God. Uh, oh, let's go to um, Luke one thirty-five. There's uh, another part of the uh, story of Christmas. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. You'll notice in the confession here, they do bring out and make sure that this is of her substance, in that He was really born in that sense as far as His Humanity is concerned from from a woman, and it was from her son. It was, he he just is not some kind of apparition, some kind of uh, ghost, some kind of a spirit, but he is real, and uh, so he has the the two natures. And of course, Joseph is not his earthly 
Father in that He, you know, helped conceive, but the Holy Spirit then uh, the did that, overshadowed her. Huh? Only had the DNA of Mary. Huh? Yeah. So um, there's the Son of God, the Son of Man. I, I don't think that that can be improved on. The excellent um, wording there that has been put forth, and of course we go back to the early church fathers, and of course whenever you go to the councils, you will see this there. We've already looked at this very early on in this study anyway. Uh, some have taken that uh, Mary's womb was like a container, and it sounds like a, a container. Um, Christ like was produced in the one. What's that? Surrogate type. Yeah, pot. yeah, right. That's, but that's not the case here. The the wording is like of substance of Mary, and so there's not a container there at all. Um, John Murray um, says Jesus was begotten by the Holy Spirit and uh, was conceived in the womb of Mary. And he says the way that some people have taught it or, or brought forth this is that it was just a holding place for, for Jesus, but he really didn't have anything to do with Mary. But it actually, we see that that is the case here. And uh, so, um, and, and that's, in, that's important. That's strict Orthodox theology. It's not cultic teaching. But some people outside of Christianity have trouble with a virgin birth, don't they? The liberals, all the liberals have trouble with virgin birth. Matter of fact, anything that has to do with supernatural, uh, with God doing things uh, in that way that we can't understand as far as humans, it can't be true. And of course, this was all settled to make sure it was settled whenever God told them, and this, God already was settled with it. But at Chalcedon, uh, the, the church came to that uh, conclusion where it was very clearly articulated. 100% man, 100% God. Uh, he uh, had had a body humanly and felt everything that humans do. Uh, sin did not uh, belong to the human nature originally. Uh, we know that. It, it was alien, the way that God created that. But because of... Sin, the alien sin nature then took over in men, and it was fit for destruction then after that. And when the Son came, He did not take a nature which had sin. He did not take that. He never did sin. He took a nature that was to bear the consequences of sin and vicariously do that as a substitute. God a man infinite value to us. Isn't it? it is extremely important to maintain that uh, belief. That is orthodox theology. Anything that strays from that is cultic. Uh, want to move on to the third one? Uh, real quick. Okay. That word perfect showed up. Again. <laughs> <laughs> We're uh, dealing yeah. with with man there, right? I'm trying to understand the way that sentence is structured. Is it saying... Like, I don't know, whenever I first read it, I was reading, uh, you know, two whole perfect distinct natures, Godhead and manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person. Yeah, you have the two um, natures, one person of Christ, now in the in the Trinity there there are three persons, but yes. we take the one person of Christ, and He has two natures though, and and they are perfect in in, in this sense. This time it's talking about uh, okay. Christ, and of course that word probably won't cause any problem there, right? Because it was it was making me think of uh, you have in one hand uh, the perfection of God, and in the other hand perfection of man. Oh, <laughs> I was like. <laughs> yeah, there, there. It's uh, very clearly is is dealing with uh, right. uh, who Christ is. His two natures. That theology, What's that? Right. Yeah. Like that theology, <laughs> yeah. Or does it mean perfect in the sense of complete? That's the way I took it. Two whole and 
complete. Right, like complete God, uh, complete man. Yeah. Finished, complete. Yeah. Um, matter of fact, when you see it in the New Testament, and you'll see it of man in the New Testament, uh, to bring uh, you know a man equipped, you know, to be perfect. And wait a minute, you go, whoa, we got a problem with that, right? But there, it's speaking of maturity or uh, complete, com- you know, being complete in Christ. You know, uh, we know that there will be, you know, the ultimate. Yeah. But but here, I agree because the, uh, there were views that. Instead of saying one whole man and one whole God, it was a combination of the two, or a hybrid. So it makes sense that it's perfect, as in two whole. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There we go. Hey, Mick, I think we got that one nailed. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Hey, and, and by the way, when we have questions, don't ask. No. You guys, <laughs> I just kidding. <laughs> Please do ask, because I'm sailing through this pretty quick now. That first one I really wanted to hit on, and because I think that is the summary of who Christ is in His work. And of course, now we we get to look at His person a little bit here. Uh, and number three, I think you get to, again, another part of His work. Um, the Lord Jesus, in His human nature, thus united to the divine was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in Him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth. John 14 there. You see scriptures all throughout in each one of these. Matter of fact, you'll see the numbers 15, 16, 17, 18. They have their scriptures there to, to, to note to it. It's all based on scripture. Um, the human nature united with the divine. All the fullness of the Godhead. You have to think of Colossians uh, 1.19. That means fully deity. This is a great text here. 1.19. For the deity of Christ, there's so many in the New Testament. This is definitely one that stands out. Uh, all cults will not believe in the deity of Christ. I've never ran into one yet that says He is the one true God, the Creator. Whether it be Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, um, you, you name it, the Eastern religions, what have you. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. To dwell in Christ, the fullness of God, the uh, the very deity there. Uh, That's interesting. Um, it makes me think uh, of whenever Peter com- com- gives that great confession of "You are the Son of the Living God, the Messiah," uh, and Jesus says, "God revealed that to you." That's almost why all the cults can't say it. Because God has held, withheld that from them. That would be the reason. That's weird. Right, yeah, they, 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 yeah, yeah that's, uh, that is uh, so offensive to them. And the Jews, the same, same there. Yeah. Uh, really, what they really got mad at him was because of his blasphemy defined by them. When he really made himself out to be God, right. he proclaimed to be God. People say, "Well, he never proclaimed to be God." Yes, he did. I and the Father are one. Other places too, but there's no mistake what he's saying there. That's the Jew knew exactly what he was saying. We are equal. We are equal. Or even what you read before when he was talking to the Samaritan woman. How do you put that? John 4. John 4. I have to give credit to somebody on Bob Radio the other day that pointed this out. So I, I, but I can't remember who it was. <laughs> too much credit. Well, it couldn't have been yesterday morning because it was out. I usually wake up to oh, Bot Radio yeah. of the morning at six thirty, six o'clock. John yeah. tuned into this. I'm sure he tried it yesterday. It wasn't there. It wasn't there. <laughs> it was just, you know, like it does. Does it happen a few times, Bob? Like it's just not there. Yeah. Just yeah. static. Yeah. Well, in this case, it was nothing. Not even oh, static this static. time. The rapture. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, <laughs> right. I can only get Bot Radio in my car. 
It just said it. Absolutely. That's good, Audrey. That's good. Robbie. I think. Robbie I'm not sure. At any rate, word we don't disagree at all. No. It's so clear. John four. John four twenty-five is Okay, and the word that hangs me up on this one is harmless. Holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth. It reminds me of from the Chronicles of Narnia when the children ask if Aslan is safe. And, and, uh, what do they say? Oh, is he tame? No, is he, is he tame? What? Is he safe? Is he safe? Yeah, is he safe? And, no, no, he's not safe. But he's good. But he's good. Exactly. That's right. That's it. That's right. But he's good. Not safe, but he's good. And he is not here to harm us. Not yeah. to harm us. But he, I, would, I wouldn't have described him good. as harmless because there is a wrath that is going to come. And it's not going to feel very harmless to those who are on the receiving end of it. So I, I, I'm and the word before that is holy, which right, is, yeah. Right. right. I'm just curious as to, as to that being in there. Why? Why the writers would have put harmless? Yeah. I think they're probably saying, "Well, good." As you said, good. he's holy, but yet, you know, he could, if he wanted to, he could judge everybody and just destroy him. You know, um, I think this really is to all those who are of his ultimately. But it pleased the Father that you know he would have those elements there. Okay, number four here. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that He might discharge, He was made under the law, and did perfectly fulfill it, endured... There we go, Mick. Perfectly. (laughs) Endured most grievous torments immediately in His soul and most painful sufferings in His body, was crucified and died, was buried and remained under the power of death, Yet saw no corruption. What happened here? Why is that there? Get that out of there. Boom. Get out of there. Was crucified and died, was buried, remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which also he ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. You know, you read these confessions and say, yeah, I know that. That's, that's simple. It's easy. I know that's the gospel. But you look at that, and that's, that's really what this is focusing in on, making sure that people have no mistake about who Christ is, what the whole idea of His works were about. The author, the office of mediator was to be executed, to, to, I mean, to, to, to do. Um, yeah, because even, I mean, the cults will deny even the small things, like Mormons would say that He went to heaven and then came to America, so He technically was not sitting at the right hand of the Father. Yeah. They say it goes against the grain of what this just this one sentence right. would hit here. By the way, if you have to deal with anybody in a, in a cults, uh, don't go chasing after rabbits, which is what they want you to do. Mm-hmm. You just always stay on the person of Christ. Don't even let it go anything further than that, because if they don't get Christ right, they're not going to get anything else right. Even though they might say the right things, and you know, but it comes down to who this person is. And of course, these elements here about his suffering and crucifixion and death, and burial, resurrection—all of those—it's the heart, isn't it? Um, I think in one breath here you have uh, the eternal Son of God, equal with God, and uh, you know he, He's subordinate uh, to to the Father. You have deity and humanity. Uh, that's to be taken seriously. Um, he was totally obedient. He was submissive. Um, 
just as if he was just a man. Of course, he is also God, but he, in his perfect obedience, it's saying that, and as he does that, he's making intercession for us. Um, H.G. Wells would take the idea of a, even what the liberals would believe. He was a man among men. That's it. <laughs> but the Bible says he's Emmanuel, God with us. A lot of songs written about that, isn't there? Sing the Christmas songs. Uh, here's the, I guess you could say, obedience and such. The Lord Jesus, by His perfect obedience, sacrificed Himself, which He, through the eternal spirits, once, Spirit, once offered up unto God, has fully satisfied the justice of His Father and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for those whom the Father has given unto Him. Perfect obedience, sacrifice, Satisfied the justice of his father. This is biblical theology. Call it reformed theology. Wrath of God. He has been satisfied. I think what you have here too, you have a passive obedience and active obedience. What's passive obedience? Obeying. And what we have here is the key is obedience. Whenever he was here as he lived his life, he prayed to the Father, he did his works, he did everything that the Father did. That was his prayer, wasn't it? I only do these things for the Father. Father, as far as your glory is concerned, this is, you know, that's what it's lined up. That would be an act of obedience. Whenever he died, you know, when you think of the Passion, the Passion Week and such, the sufferings that he went through, that would be a passive obedience in his suffering. Um, enduring punishment, right? That was the passive obedience, although he willingly did this. He could have gotten out of it at any moment. Um, but it was absolute perfection and completeness in, in that. Um, that's what Anselm wrote about in his absolute perfection, his completeness, or his passive obedience, active obedience, and every avenue. Uh, look at Romans 5.19 for a moment here. Romans 5.19 for as through the one man's disobedience, who's that? Adam, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, Christ, second Adam, the many, those chosen by God, will be made righteous, declared righteous, be justified. So, there we have the first Adam, the second Adam. We have disobedience versus obedience. Perfect obedience. That's what He gave to us because of His perfect works, His righteousness. His righteousness was then seen at the great exchange, you know, the cross. As He took our sin, He placed His the righteousness of Christ on us. And result was the resurrection then we see the justification of his people because of that act I'll move on although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation yet the virtue efficacy and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices, wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman, which should bruise the serpent's head, all the way back to Genesis 3, and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday and today the same and forever. The Old Testament's saints, they looked 
to that Lamb of God. They looked to the Messiah. They looked for the one who would give them forgiveness. Types, sacrifices, that's what was given. So anybody who trusted in those sacrifices that would ultimately be seen through the person of Christ, as time went on, more was revealed to them. But that, and we talked about that, I believe, last week, right at the end. Um, promises, types, sacrifices, Old Testament. And we see ultimately that the Old Testament saints were saved the same way that we were. Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Same way it is with us today. We believe God has counted us as righteousness. Um, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Barbara didn't quite make it, did I? I told you. <laughs> Galatians 4, four. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so the fullness of time came. All those um, who were born under the law, of course it was about redeeming all the way through. Uh, those people saw Christ... They saw them in that sense. They trusted in him. That's kind of the idea there. And uh, seven says Christ in the work of mediation acts according to both natures. By each nature, that's the human nature, his divine nature, doing that which is proper to itself. Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. What's going on here? Christ is in a class by Himself. There's no one like Him. He's the only God-man. He's totally unique from any other being. There's no analogy to Him. Two natures, one person. The divine person added to Himself a human nature. Brought that on. Um, in the early church, there were controversies on the person of Christ. And of course, Chalcedon in AD 451 um, came down with this one that the biblical ones were arguing for one person, two natures. You have a community there of, of attributes, and you know uh, you have God sleeping in a boat. How can God sleep? You know, well, there's the human nature gives the answer to that. How about in uh, Acts twenty twenty eight, where it talks about the blood of God? Now, God has no body. God has no blood, but the person of Christ who is God, shed that blood. Man has blood, real red blood. Jesus had real red blood, human blood there. The Father is greater than I, Jesus says. Well, there again, speaking in human nature, the two are equal. But yet, there's the human nature that brings forth that. One more. This is great. They all are. This is. I, I really like this. Should have a lot of meaning. And why did it do that? Why did it do that? It's just shifting on me, and it's just going crazy now. Right here on this last oh, yeah. one. You have the. Uh, uh -oh. It's. Yeah. I'm not even no. doing anything. What's happening? Now I don't even know where we're at in this now because it just started floating around everywhere. Definitely in the mediator section. Five, six. We're right on number eight. We're on our last one. There we go. Thank you, Mick. Save the day. Got to read this one. I'm not touching it. Let's read this together. To all those for whom Christ has <laughs> purchased redemption, He does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same making intercession for them and revealing unto them and in and by the Word the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by His Spirit to believe and obey. Ooh, that's beautiful. You know, you know why? The good news would be absolutely meaningless if it is not applied. It had to be applied to us. There's more. Oh, oh, there's more. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Governing their hearts by His Word and Spirit, overcoming all their enemies by His almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most 
consonant to His wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. He applies His grace. He not only supplied the grace at the cross, but He applied it. If He doesn't apply it, what good would it do? And this is dealing with definite atonement. I think you can definitely take from there. Um, Macon of the early 1900s, a Presbyterian, said when Christ sets out to save a people, He saves a people. (laughs) Simple as that. When Christ sets out to save a people, He saves a people. He's always defeating our enemies. So Christ, the mediator, and is that thing still just floating all over the place? It means that His blood, the blood of the covenant, Luke 22.20, I don't think we've read that one today. I was going to earlier. I might have missed it. 22.20. Hey, I might have read it too. Maybe I did. And the same way, He took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. It's poured out for you. Um, Every time we take the Lord's Supper, that might have even a little bit more pop and power to us as we read it now in the light of mediator, covenant, or it's a good reminder to us. Maybe we know these things, of course, but the blood of the the covenant, you think of Hebrews, uh, speaks of it so much. He he purchased all the fulfillment of the promises that were made to us. It means that God is the one who brings all of this about. It means that there's an inner transformation that has happened to us. It was God who did it. Of course, what in 2 Corinthians 5, we talked about that the other day. It's God who does it. He transforms us through faith. So the new covenant is purchased by the blood of Christ and it's affected by the Spirit of Christ, as this paragraph is saying, and it's appropriated by faith in Christ. He's the one that does it. I, I think uh, maybe one of the best places to see the working of the mediator is in Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, this is the purchase of the new covenant, even Jesus our Lord equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's Him working in us. Uh, That describes what happens. God writes the law on our hearts in the new covenant. That was promised in Jeremiah 31 in um, Ezekiel. I think... uh, in, uh, in that area, he's saying that he he, he writes the law. He, he gives, he makes it happen. He's the one who does this is through Christ. So the meaning of Christmas, I think as you look through here, is not only God is taking the shadows of the Old Testament, the pictures, the types, not only does the reality come here, but it also takes that reality and He makes it real to the people. He applies it to the people. He makes it happen. Otherwise, it wouldn't happen. He writes it on our hearts. He doesn't lay His Christmas gift of salvation and transformation. He doesn't just lay it down there for you and you're the one who has to pick it up. You have to pick that up in your own strength. He doesn't do that. What He does, He picks it up. He puts it in our hearts and in our minds and He seals us as children of God. Man, that's a Christmas story, isn't it? So anyway, the blood of the covenant purchased by Christ that transforms us as He does the work in us and even through our ongoing living, our sanctification. I think that's kind of what that last paragraph is speaking of. A lot of it there, it's all about Christ. None of these things are unfamiliar. We're all very familiar with these teachings. But this is historical faith going all the way back, not only to the Westminster Confession, but all the way back to the teaching of Christ who is the prophet. Old Testament, New Testament.
This just sums it up. About yes. a few paragraphs. Yes. John Murray, you were speaking of him. Yes. You've probably read it or have it, or maybe some of you have. He has the most wonderful little book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Just a great, a great book. Very that that makes you rejoice, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Accomplished, it's been done. It's been he didn't just halfway get it done, but he accomplished it and then applied it. And we are living witnesses of the application that has been done and still doing. It's a great work, isn't it? This just glorifies God. Truths that you guys already know, but yet it helps remind us, doesn't it? And that's really what all these are. I don't think there's going to be things in here we disagree with. Certain wordings can be. They can be dated. But uh, as a whole, this is what we believe. This is the what the church believes. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this evening. Thank You again for Your truth, Your Word. Thank You for the prophet. Thank You for the priest. Thank You for the king. Christ accomplished the work and He has applied it. And we give You all the glory. In Your Son's name, Amen. Merry Christmas.